0: You are listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists, by machinists. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson of Proteum Machining, and this week I'm happy to welcome Chris Lichty. Welcome, Chris.
1: Yeah, thanks, Dylan. Uh, great to be on the show. Really honored to actually be on here, and it's kind of, you know, it's funny the the things that people find interesting, and, and <laughs> we had to find a group of like-minded like machinists and you know we can all get together and hear each other's stories so it's pretty cool
0: yeah definitely so for those who don't know who you are and what you do what are all the details
1: uh yeah so my name is chris Lichty, uh machinist in victoria bc um uh, so the company that i work for and vice president at currently uh and also part owner it's called rainhouse manufacturing canada we started out as prototype equipment design it's kind of a neat story of how it was founded. The, the owner and founder, Ray Brome, he was a maintenance superintendent at a pulp and paper mill in Northern BC, Mackenzie BC, and uh, he did that for a number of years and moved between different mills and, and pulp mills, and then decided that he wanted to get his engineering degree, and so he backed up everything and moved down to Victoria, BC, on Vancouver Island, and. Enrolled in the University of Victoria engineering program and went through that, got his diploma and was going to go through and get his PNG. But at the time he was sharing a space with a group of, well, he was working on, on his uh, PhD, I think maybe, or anyway, so he was sharing space with a group of scientists and what they were doing is developing a way to grow CZT crystals. So cadmium, zinc, telluride crystals, and those are used in gamma ray radiation detection. Um, so things like medical imagery and, and um, security, things like that. And so these are scientists. So they had kind of the theory all wrapped up in how to make these things, but the machines and that they were using were pretty early days. And so Ray saw an opportunity to kind of help them out and build their first machines. And that kind of blossomed into building their whole entire factory. So furnaces and All the test equipment and processing equipment involved with that so that was sort of the major customer and that started the company in ray's garage at first and then eventually moved into the place where we're at now and been steadily growing we've now have three of the bays where we're at and so um you know it was it was pretty neat when i started there i was living in woodstock ontario at the time and kind of decided i wanted to move make a change i just finished my apprenticeship so I was just looking at places that I could move to, saw Victoria and found this shop called Prototype Equipment Design. They always we always laugh about the domain name because it was like the worst email address ever to tell people is engineersmachineshop.ca
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. As one who has a longer email signature or email address, I can definitely empathize there. You're like, man, I should have just made it like four letters like make it really easy
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah we shortened it to ped can eventually but that wasn't too much better but (laughs) yeah so i found this place this, this shop and it just seemed like they were doing really interesting things so i saw one day when i was sitting at home in woodstock that they had a job opening and so i emailed right away i was like oh you know maybe in teresa she's the ops manager there she's still with us she responded and she was just like and this is you know 2010 so very pre-hiring online for them and everything they she responded and said okay well if you're gonna move here just stop in when you get here kind of thing so (laughs) moved out without a job and just drove across country and got there and showed up at their door with a resume it was really kind of funny too i walked in and nobody was around it was lunchtime and at that time (laughs) they just didn't stagger any shifts so i waited for 15 minutes before somebody finally walked up. And uh, it was a little bit different than we are now. And yeah, I interviewed pretty well. And they called me back the next day and basically offered me the job. So it, it worked out as good as it could have. That was the only resume I printed off. So my sister always laughed at me. She says, you know, one resume, one job.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so what were you hired for at that point?
1: Just as a machinist. Yeah, okay. so I just finished my... Tool and apprenticeship in in ontario okay before moving out so before uh,
0: we continue that story i want to jump back how did you get into manufacturing what was the the trigger that led you down you know the rabbit hole that we were all on right of course it was really started with grade school in
1: grade i was lucky enough that it, my grade six seven eight school had a full wood shop and really enjoyed just making things going in there building things with my hands i would take my lunch hour and spend it in the shop and just me and uh, like one other kid and the teacher and we'd just clean things up kind of keep the machines maintained and do whatever and just hang out and then from there our high school also had full shop so we had wood shop a machine shop auto shop electrical and some CAD design and all that so it was really kind of a lucky and good time I know that's not quite as common nowadays in schooling yeah especially uh, it's in you know bad.
0: middle school like yeah. to have wood shop that's i mean at least for me unheard of i've never oh, heard yeah. of middle school being able you know trusting terrifying. people that age yeah. to, to work on wood stuff so that's like amazing wood
1: lathes and like all the scariest things routers yeah <laughs> yeah i can't imagine like uh, kids in grade six seven and eight just being set loose on that stuff that uh props to the teacher you must have had so much patience <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah for
1: sure <laughs> yeah
0: so then um, how did that translate to a career in manufacturing
1: yeah so in high school yeah just always really gravitated towards the machine shop um and then at the time I was super into BMX riding and so that was sort of you know seeing all the billet parts billet stamps cranks and all these parts that are machined and kind of seeing, oh, okay, that's how that's made. I actually made myself my own stem and I think like grade 10. And it just kind of escalated from there. I was always interested in it. And then my dad was, is a fabricator, welder fabricator. So he got me a job at his, at the shop he was at at the time, just as a saw operator and uh, kind of ran their saw for a little bit. And there was some machining. We were on nights and it was just me and him and one other guy. There's a couple of machining jobs that would come up. And I just go over to the manual mill and you know drill holes, basically nothing, nothing crazy at all. And then from there, I got a job at another shop in town, running same thing, run their saw, and then went on to the, being a press brake operator. But I always wanted to kind of run CNCs, and I would operate CNCs at that shop, but never anything beyond that. And then with BMX, I had an opportunity to take a trip, so I just I asked them for three weeks off, and they said no, so I quit. and they they couldn't believe it they're like really you're gonna quit but it was kind of the best thing because when I got back I found a shop in town that was willing to offer me an apprenticeship and it was funny they asked me at the time do you want to do machinist or tool and die it was a machine shop we didn't make dies and I was like "Ah, whatever I'll do tool and die (laughs) it sounds cooler (laughs) so I've made one die in my life it was at school (laughs) (laughs) oh boy uh, yeah plenty of tooling I suppose um, but yeah, that was a great opportunity, opportunity at that shop. They kind of really set me, let me loose on whatever I wanted to do. I designed my own CNC mill at that time, um, and could go in after hours and machine parts for it. And that was oh, how cool. the, yeah, that was like the best learning opportunity. I think that's when my skills really jumped up to another level. Cause I'm just like on my own, I've got this big project, a big giant $300 chunk of steel that I had to pay for out of my pocket. <clears throat> and uh don't screw up
0: right, right. <laughs> figure
1: out how to run this machine that i've never really ran before and they just didn't care they let me do whatever i needed and it was neat. we. they actually bought a four axis mill or a hor- four axis horizontal mill and it was brand new and kind of let me just lead that one so i programmed all the parts on it did all the first articles through it and everything so from there i was just always been hooked on machining
0: that's awesome. And so you were there for your entire apprenticeship and that that's when you moved to Rainhouse.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I stayed there until 2010 and all of, so on that, the horizontal mill, we were proving out a new contract that we got for locomotive parts. So every day or week would be a new part. So I'd get the, someone else or we i would either make the fixture or we had a tooling guy and he'd make the fixture and then I'd program the part, prove out the part, do the first article. And then move on to the next one and do that over and over and over. And then eventually I was done them all right around the time when I finished my apprenticeship. And so I didn't want to stay there and
0: now run all the parts <laughs> over and over. <laughs> I can empathize with that for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how big was Rainhouse at the time you joined? And then how big are you guys now?
1: Uh, yeah, so when I joined, they just moved into the other into another bay. So they went from 2,000 square feet to 4,000 square feet, I think probably around 10 to 12 people sort of. And now we're into another bay. So around that 6,000 square foot and hover around 20 people generally.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. And then what kind of machinery do you guys have?
1: Yeah. So we have a couple Hitachi Siki vertical mills. They're like a 1999 machine bridge style though. They're great, great machines. They're Everyone I talk to about them, they're always like, oh yeah, they were ahead of their time for sure. Yeah, Uh, that's what, that's,
0: I've never run one, but that's everything I've heard is that they're tanks and that they, you know, had a lot of features that others didn't.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, and then we have currently a Puma 240M. We bought that new in 2006 before I was there. Uh, Matsura MX-520, a robo-drill with a robot tender on it. And we just got a Nakamura WT-150. Uh, and then throughout the years, we also had a wire EDM. We got rid of that a couple manual machines as well. And we've got, aside from the machining aspect of the business, we have a pick and place machine for electronics. So we do circle board manufacturing
0: as well. How much of the business is still custom machinery versus job shop or like just making parts?
1: Um, it's pretty much all that custom machinery is pretty well done now. It's mostly job shop making parts. Yeah, we have another division that kind of does design R&D type stuff, engineering. So from time to time, we'll get maybe some someone will come in and want a machine built or some con- contract manufacturing. But the majority of our stuff now is job shop.
0: Okay. So we've got your backstory. You applied. You got hired. How do you go from machinist to VP? You know, one of our questions from listeners, Bryce asked, define vice president of manufacturing. So- how do we get from where you were to where you are now? And what does that mean? Yeah. So
1: first maybe four years, I was just machinist. I'd go in every day. I run run the same machines and just pump parts out. And uh, at times I really missed that. <laughs> but from there, Corey at the time, Cory Ballner' he's another business partner and and he was a lead machinist. And he was kind of moving on to other things out at the shop a little bit more. So I took on lead machinist role and That really just involved, you know, managing the people and kind of scheduling machines and a little bit more than just running a machine all day long. Uh, Fast forward a few more years and my responsibilities got greater and greater as we went on and it's just small, small shop type things, right? You just pick up the slack wherever it needs to be picked up from and just pick on new roles as much as you can uh, without ever really like having that Oh, I want to be vice president in my head. It was, I just want to learn and, and do as much as I can. Uh, so eventually, uh, I guess the big thing really was we onboarded a new ERP system. We went with pro shop and, uh, that gave me the opportunity to learn a lot more of the front office workings. So, you know, all, everything beyond. What is just happening out in the shop? So invoicing, POs, order creation, all of that type of thing, and so then I started doing a lot more of that myself and customer inter- interactions as well. So eventually, the lead machinist title was kind of outgrown just with my role that I was doing. So we kind of settled on VP manufacturing and did that for a year. And I then Ray kind of approached me and he was just like, "Okay, well, why don't you just be." We'll just drop the of manufacturing and BVP. But I mean, at the end of the day, titles are just titles and they don't really matter, especially not internally. And I tell people that all the time, like my colleagues don't care what my title is. It just doesn't matter. It's really just for that external customer facing thing. And, you know, you do notice that people respond to you differently. when you have a vice president title. Yeah, Um, for sure. And the biggest thing is you get a lot more junk mail. And a lot more <laughs> a lot, a lot more, more sales emails, yeah, a lot yeah, more check sure. cold calls, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. so clearly, I mean, you you said you are ta- taking on more roles, you were taking on more responsibility. You were growing. Clearly, there was some company culture there when you started that allowed that. How has the company culture shifted as you've been there, and what did you start with? like what 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 about the company when you joined? made you th- want to continue to just take on more responsibility? I, I know a lot of people who work in shops that. I'm doing my bare minimum because nobody seems to encourage any of this and, and i'm gonna get out at five o'clock and go home so you know clearly there was a good company culture what was it like and how how have you guys kind of trained that to where it is now
1: right so ray's always been kind of pushed to that entrepreneur entrepreneurial spirit throughout the company where all, everybody there's salary right from the start which i thought was you know coming from shop in ontario very very different and then it's just everybody Right from there's small things that really stand out when I started there. So right from the get go, you know, I got a box of business cards and an email, and it's just like small things that I really didn't have at all at the previous places that I was ever at. Um We all got a key. Everybody has a key to the shop and can go use it whenever we want for personal projects at any time. There's there's no oh, wow. Issue. How yeah, cool? Yeah, it's really really so just things like that and just showing that you know there's that trust in somebody. And there's that, that back and forth that like, okay, well, if you, you work hard, you're also going to have this freedom as well to do whatever it is that you want to do in the shop. Um, okay. So that's kind of the small things that really stuck out in the beginning. Uh, and then just like I mentioned, just being in a small shop, you just always have that opportunity. If you want to learn and you want to learn a new machine or learn a new process, you know, most people aren't going to stop you. Yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, so now we're just trying to keep that going. Uh, we still have the thing where, you know, everybody gets a key business cards and emails, and we really try and just make everybody feel like part of the team right from the get-go. That's um, awesome. And then lots of cross training as well, whenever we can. And, uh, we have two apprentices right now as well. So just keeping that constant learning attitude and men- mentality.
0: That's so killer. So I imagine now that you're VP, you're involved in probably a little bit more of the hiring as well. So yeah. what are the kind of things that you look for in potential candidates that let you kind of know, oh, I'm gonna give them this trust. Cause you know, it is a two way street. I imagine if you're giving them all of this upfront and all this trust upfront, you are looking for a very specific candidate.
1: Yeah, exactly. The, it's really hard to find qualified people on an island in the pacific uh so without a crazy amount of industry as well in ontario it was always like well there's a handful of shops around and you can put out an ad and somebody will come along eventually for say machinists or we're currently looking for a quality lead and it's really really difficult (laughs) to find but really the biggest thing is The first thing we do whenever somebody comes in for an interview is just give them a tour of the shop, walk them around, ask them questions, see if they, what they know about machines, how, what their interest is, and just try and get to know them as a person. I think the culture is really the most important thing. We've had people that were qualified that didn't really fit in with the culture or get along with everybody there. And it was really more detrimental than good. So I'd rather hire somebody that doesn't necessarily have all of the skills right off the bat but is open to learning and is friendly and, you know, is going to get along with people and
0: and just do it that way. Yeah, totally. It is very surprising how far not being an asshole will take you in life. Like really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. It's pretty Um, basic, but yeah, yeah, some people just haven't grasped that
0: one yet. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we can get to some questions from listeners. Jake Giles from the Patreon asked, MX330 or 520 and any plans for another robotic loaded mill? So I, we can use this kind of as a jumping off point on automation in general as well.
1: Sure. Yeah. So Jake's a great guy. He actually bought one of our machines off of us. and The Taco. Was that? Yeah. has yeah. the XY. Yeah. So he came over and bought that. He's... It was great to meet him and at that time and we've kind of kept in touch awesome so 520 all the way for me it's hydraulic brakes on the rotaries so they're dead solid uh one of my friends they've got a 330 and we put an indicator on his table with the brakes on and you lean on it and you can see it move and then like mine you could just stand on the table and there's it doesn't even move <laughs> nothing happens at all so hydraulic brakes all the way and just you know a bit more rigid, a little bit bigger. Some of the we've done a few parts that are stretching the capability of, of the 520 even. So oh wow, yeah, a 320 or a 330 would just wouldn't quite be the right fit. And make, for the for our mix of parts, although the PC10 would be amazing, obviously 10 pallets, but
0: we do not have the space for it right now (laughs) (laughs) well yeah because the 520 you can only get four is that right the pc4
1: and it's huge and for what you get for four pallets the the add-on to your floor space is massive so i think the pc4 maybe wouldn't quite be right the pc10 seems like the right fit if you're going into that high mix or any high volume automation for sure i think if uh so on to the question the second part of that is uh looking at putting a robot on any other mills. So the 520 would be a pretty good candidate for robot systems. So they have the robots that are, you know, 30 pallets or something in the size of the PC four, right. just with a FANUC arm and grabs it pallet to pallet. I think if we were going to do anything, it would be that. Like a uh, Trinity or something. Yeah, exactly. The Trinity, okay. those are pretty slick systems. And, uh, but again, floor space would be the issue for us. At this point, I think if we were to go, you know, if the right parts came along that we needed that kind of automation and as well the financing was available, we'd probably look at more MAM style machine, just, uh, something with that. We only have 60 tools on the MX. So Uh, I say, I say only, but it is a lot of tools on a single, single pallet machine. It's great. But I think if you stepped up to multi-pallets, you'd want to go into that tool. Magazine where you're, yeah, you know, a couple hundred tools and totally. just never
0: have to worry about it. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So, were you around when they bought the 520 and the Robo Drill, or the, you said it was a, an automated Robo Drill, right? Yeah. So,
1: <clears throat> that was sort of, I mean, I don't want to take all the credit, but I was very stubborn in wanting that machine. <laughs> <laughs> we had, so we bought the Puma and we had a, a Daewoo mill that they bought at the same time, new in 2006. And then after that, we had the Attachies; those were bought slightly used. Um, and then from there, I think most of the machines we had were coming in used. And so the MX was a big step for big step in that we were investing in brand new equipment again. So it was a big investment for the company as well. My well, Bryce and I went. Bryce is the one who asked the question about the VP thing. <laughs> so we're really good friends. He's GM at a Shop in Town, and. We went to IMTS together and sort of just split the costs with between our two companies, make it oh, cool. a little bit easier for a trip. Yeah, it's really really nice to have that kind of uh, person to bounce bounce ideas off of as well. And so we went to went to the show. They had just bought a three thirty the day the year before. And so he was showing me the five twenty and he's like, Oh, you gotta get this one. Like I already have a three thirty, <laughs> get the one bigger and, and so he's egging me on and we're looking at do sands as well and just all the 5x jeans. I came back and there was no way that we weren't going to get a 5 axis set that time. So we looked at a used one first actually that came up near uh, is in Vancouver. It had been for sale for months. And I went over there, the salesman picks us up and drives us to the place, we're looking at the machine and I'm like, "Yeah, it's awesome. It's perfect. It's tooled up nicely. Nice options. Like we should get this." And we go out for lunch and He drops us off and then I get a text from him like right away. Hey, I just got a call from another customer. They're buying the machine.
0: (laughs) Oh, no "No way.
1: Yeah. I was like, it's been for sale for months and the day we go over to look at it, it sold. So he ended up, they, they did a pretty good deal for us at the end of the year to pick up the machine. It had been sitting on their floor for a while, but it was brand new. It's a 2016 machine and we bought it in late 2018 and then yeah they were great getting it shipped over to us and all set up and that was so yeah like i said first kind of major upgrade machine purchase and from there we've steadily been kind of
0: trying to continue upgrading technologies and new machines and so on so what what kind of typical size orders are you looking at i imagine you have to have somewhat of a larger run to automate a robo drill like that
1: yeah most of our stuff is short is small volume high mix it is you know, we'll we'll do ones, ones, fives, tens quite often. One of our medical customers that we've been working with uh, throughout their growth stage started out with those ones, fives, tens, and now they're getting into you know thirties and forties. And we're like, oh yeah, that's that's great. It's just <laughs> bread and butter now. <laughs> with the robo drill, we were bidding on a job that had come up from a uh, forestry company in town, and these are high volume consumable parts that go on all the machinery. And so the volumes were kind of in the tens of thousands a year. And so we're looking at that job and it came up and I went home that night and just started looking, you know, watching machine videos and was like obsessing over robo drills and drill tap machines and brothers. And uh, jokingly, well, more serious, I text Ray and I was like, Hey, if we get that job, I'm buying one of these. He's like, well, if you can make it work. so. Bought the robo drill. We got the job. Yeah, I started making them just on the VS 40, the Dachi with a single vice, like a fixture in a vice. And then from there, the robo drill shows up and we have the, I got the orange vice with the pallet system and I built out so we could do six parts at a time on one pallet, but it's still sucked, right? You're doing a thousand parts. Oof. And so I made a point to run them as much as anybody else <laughs> <laughs> there, you know, with an impact and just like, and I think that cycle time it's, what was it? Under, under a minute and a half for oh, six no. like, it was fast. You're just flying oh. the whole time. <laughs> yeah, it was quick. And so the whole idea was we were going to automate that eventually. And it was just a matter of how much money we had in the budget to automate this machine at the same time the province of BC put out a a grant application or opening. So it was called the AMG advanced manufacturing grant. And so we put in a bid for that and ended up being one of the lucky recipients. And so that was, yeah. So they kicked in 250,000 and we had to top up the rest. So it was a $70,000 cash investment for us to match their 250. And so with that, we were able to just go to our machine tool salespeople, and say okay <laughs> give me some bids and they they came up with two different systems one was more of a drawer system kind of an off-the-shelf solution that was tailored for these parts and then the other one was a fully custom engineered solution for us with custom built pallets and pockets for the pallets to go in and fanic robot attached to it and so that's the one we ended up going with so there's an agile robotic system okay. so Yeah, Elliot, uh, Elliot Matsura in Canada, they're the one, they've sold us all of our machines since the 520 as well. So we have a really good relationship with them. And so that robot, that was a six month project that uh, just to get that design done and all of the factory testing sign offs done. When we signed on for this, they have a Kentucky office. So I thought Agile was in Kentucky, but it's actually, they build everything in Australia.
0: So oh jeez yeah
1: which was fine it actually they did a really great job of we had weekly meetings with both Elliot and Agile and myself at at all the weekly catch up meetings and they did a great job of keeping me up to date and and everything running smoothly we had so with the grant the thing was everything had to be installed fully functioning and done by January 31st of that year and so we had a hard stop deadline like I was, if it doesn't get installed, we don't get money, which means you guys don't get money, (laughs) so they really pushed to get that done. One of the major things was since it was from Australia, they wanted to ship it in like by ocean freight and I'm looking at the timelines and I'm looking at how long they estimated it was going to take and from there, I kind of realized that this thing is going to stop in multiple ports along the way. And there was also a strike looming at the Vancouver port. And so all of these things kind of like just made me not sleep for an entire night. And I was like, we can't do this. So we just decided that day, that morning, I was like, okay, put it on a plane. There's no way we're doing this. So it was a little bit more costly quite a bit, but it was definitely worth it to have that box show up the next week instead of waiting until they were, they were scheduled to have it show up. I think it was the third week of no second week of january they were going to show up the third week of january to install it that week and be done by the 31st like
0: yeah that's a little too tight yeah (laughs) even as it was
1: we ended up pulling uh i think it was seven 12 hour days in a row at least putting this thing in it was great because i got to work there was two installers actually and that came up and one of the guys had to leave and we're doing all the sign off final sheets final sign off on all the parts everybody's happy it's late at night and all of a sudden they go to put one of the longer parts in and it doesn't fit and i'm like oh, oh. no. and his face he just goes white he's like chris i don't know what happened we tested the small because we had six different parts sizes and what happened is they laser cut the parts in australia to show me that it worked over video and i could do the factory sign off but they had laser cut the smaller of the parts and so Oof. the pocket size of the pallet was i think there was like a millimeter of clearance for these parts to go in and so they're good about it andrew's like okay well we can't sign this obviously i have to leave but we'll get this fixed fixed so i was with the other installer for three more days i think and then it became him bouncing ideas off of me and i had never run a fanic robot or industrial robot before ever so it was just like a different language but by the end of it after troubleshooting with him and kind of being able to work together i really had a great understanding of the system so it was kind of like three personal free days of training robot training so it worked out in the end and they figured it out they 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 ended up redesigning the pallets and getting ones well, we actually got them made here instead of Australia. <laughs> so oh, they, re- they redesigned them and said, they gave me the option, but I was like, yeah, we work with sheet metal people all the time and welders. Like That's part of our business is a lot of outsourcing for what we don't have in-house. And so it was easy for us. And we just shipped off the drawings, got them all cut up and welded, powder coated. And then they sent a new program and it was good. So yeah, it was, it was a good learning experience though.
0: Oh yeah but right up to the wire it sounds so stressful. Oh yeah we finished on the 31st. So tell me about the unintended or or unknown things that come along with a robot system. Every time I talk to somebody who's automated something it's not you know the very obvious things that might go wrong. It is oh chips built up in this corner and I didn't we didn't know about it and then now we've over flooded the, the coolant tank or like you know it's the weird stuff that always catches you out it seems like when it's not a built-in system like a mam or something like that so yeah. what what has come of, of that how did you guys fix them and approach them
1: yeah so i i mean i think you hit the biggest one is chips chips everywhere they will get everywhere and they will stop everything uh, always and so the big thing we do is just try and keep a checklist of whenever a run goes wrong we will at least try and write it down and then we can see the frequency of when things are happening and kind of tackle them one thing at a time. Um, the one that we're kind of dealing with right now is chips in the auto door. And sometimes it'll just, for whatever reason it gets to the end and then bounces and it will turn off the sensor. So the sensor goes on then off like is, and there's no debounce. Um, so the robot just will not go into the machine because it doesn't think the door is now open. Oh no. So that one has happened a few times. It's uh, a, 12 hour run so we have the two part six different parts two different thicknesses so on our thicker parts it'll run for 12 hours and then on the thinner parts 24 hours and so it's it's a good size unattended run and there's and because the part so each part is under a minute cycle time so the robot's That's a just lot constantly of parts. moving oh yeah Jeez. it's a thousand parts per pallet and so it's just <laughs> constantly moving there's so many opportunities for it to screw something up Another one is we have magnetic grippers on it, and if a mag, sometimes a chip will get stuck on the magnet right near the sensor, and then the robot will think, okay, it's not open, or it's, the magnet's not open, or whatnot, or proc sensor failures. We've had, I think, like six proc sensors go bad on, a grip, on our one grippers for whatever reason. Like chip will get embedded in the plastic on the end, and then it just won't work. So we've realized that uh, cleaning it out and then just throwing it in the ultrasonic actually seems to fix it
0: but we always have
1: always have spare proc sensors on hand we have a spare magnetic gripper on hand the robot's pretty bulletproof we haven't had any issues with that but the machine on its own usually works pretty good we've got but it's again chips so uh spiral flute taps sort of the thicker parts they're a36 that's the thing too that's two different materials so the one is a36 mild steel and the other one's 1045. So the A36, we got to use a spiral flute tap and pec tap to keep the chips short, but sometimes we'll get a chip under a part and I probe each part beforehand just to check Z height and I have a tolerance and if it gets too high, it'll just stop the machine. So that's one that always gets us as, and then on the thinner parts, we just use a spiral tip tap and just go right through. So those ones work pretty good, but they also have their own issues. Those ones are pre-hardened. So the teeth of these get hardened induction hardened they're uh, like a gripper or uh, okay. a feed for a feed roll and so the teeth get induction hardened prior to coming in it was running fine on our old process and everything's good and then i think it was a first run on the robo drill and we just were blowing up tooling and we came to realize that the induction hardening had gone too deep it's only supposed to be the teeth and by the oh, root no. it's supposed to be soft and these parts were hard so yeah we Blew up drills and then taps are blowing up. We bought an OSG thread mill, $300 thread mill. And I think it lasted like a (laughs) hundred parts. It was just a nightmare. And I was thinking to myself, like, this is a disaster. If this happens every time we're screwed. Luckily, it's only been that one batch. So I don't know what happened or why. So what we've done to, we're trying to do to mitigate that actually, is we're going to add on induction heating into that cell as well. So we're building that part out. We're designing it all ourselves. We're putting an induction machine above the machine, above the Robo drill, actually just above the cabinet and then building a little rotary arm where the robot can then load the parts into the Robo drill, drill and tap, do all the machining. And then when it takes it out, it'll put it into this induction system and translate it through a coil and then quench it right away and then take it out and put it in the box. So hard hardening afterwards. So,
0: Oh, cool. That's It'll awesome. be
1: nice. The big push was that batch of parts that was hardened all the way through. And I was like, this sucks. That has become a non-issue. And now it's more just for lead time and inventory. Right now, the, the hardening adds about four weeks of lead time. And so now we're inventorying an entire batch at Rainhouse. And so oh, our inventory and costs are skyrocketed because of that, right? So if we well, can and do You this, said you were
0: space limited already. So that exactly. doesn't help. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: It's not great. We got barrels and barrels of these things sitting in a bay. But so being able to induction harden them in-house means that we can just buy them when we need them. The company that's cutting them for us has agreed to inventory them at their place. They have a lot more space. So they just cut a batch ahead of time and then we just pay when we get it. So if we can do that with. The other, the skinny ones that get hardened as well. That'll really help. Awesome.
0: That, that's yeah. really cool. So, how do you guys? Like, do you have a formal process when something goes wrong on your automated system to fix it, or is it just you know you or your head programmer just jumping in and saying, "Okay, I, I got this." You know, like if when you went from the taps to the thread mill, how did that process happen?
1: Yeah, it's not formal at all. It's really just yeah, either myself or the guy running the machine will just kind of come up with an idea okay how about we try this and all right well let's give it a shot and see what happens every everybody that's in the shop is a setup programmer machinist so that really helps too they can all bounce ideas off of each other and it's fun when I'm working next door in my office for the day and I'll walk over and just see something completely different going on than when it the other day and I'm like oh what's what's going on they're like oh well we had this issue so I did this and now it's running better And it's just like, nice. And nobody asked me anything. And it just happened.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's killer. Yeah, that's when you you chose the right people for sure.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
0: So do you guys do company meetings every week? How, How do you guys make sure that, you know, priorities and everything get flowed down? I know that even in small shops, that can be a big issue of, you know, not that you're trying to limit communication, but that you don't realize that there is a lack of communication until it becomes a problem. So how do you guys make sure that everybody is on, on the same page. Right.
1: Yeah. We started doing maybe a year ago, I think, department meetings every Monday, and that really helped. So, in the machinist meeting, my manufacturing manager, she will go over, she runs those meetings, and they'll go over new POs that came in that week so that we all, and they'll open up all the jobs and everybody gets a chance to see what parts are coming up, what parts will be coming through the shop in the future, including quality, qualities in there as well. So, we can talk about inspection requirements in process checks and all of those things at that same time as well we'll go over our delivery numbers for the previous week just make sure see how around time delivery is Um, and then schedule as well at that time so we like i said we use pro shop so just having any erp with some sort of scheduling it's it's not perfect by any means but it just helps people we used to have file folders on the wall with paper travelers that would all get mixed up out of order (laughs) so this is much better everybody has access to it at every single workstation so they can always just pull up and that's kind of what we use for priorities in the shop we'll just move the schedule around and then the guys will look at that schedule to see what job should be going on the machine next and then being a small shop obviously there are things that come up all the time and we'll just go out and talk to them say okay well i know we said to do this one but Hopefully not, but
0: then you tear down and <laughs> yeah, do this instead? Exactly. <laughs> Every machinist's favorite words. I know you just started this, but. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, oh. And then,
1: uh, so, and on top of that, we do a team meeting, a company-wide team meeting on Tuesdays, where we kind of go through most of the same things that we do in the, in the department meetings, but just with the whole entire team. So that just lets people, we have a few... Fairly segregated departments are different from, you know, machining, we have SMT, and then engineering and design. So it gives a chance for everybody to see what everyone else is up to, as well as pool resources together. So if one department needs a hand and somebody else isn't quite that busy that week, they'll kind of put up their hand and say, okay, well, I can come over and and help out if you need so.
0: That's killer. That's really Mm -hmm. great. Do you guys do anything specific to make sure that quality does not become the enemy of machining? Because I have worked in both machining and quality roles. And I know that there can be a lot of friction there when really, you know, everybody's on the same team, but you know, as a quality person, you get yelled at a lot by machinists of no, no, you're wrong. I'm right. Absolutely. I mean, that's problematic.
1: Every single shop. I'm sure. Uh, There's for us, the the problem isn't that quality is the enemy really it's or the quality department it's more so some of the quality requirements now with some of our newer customers are just becoming so intense that people are starting to see that and see like okay well this is slowing me down and this is getting in my way and things like that so it's really just trying to be open and that's one of the questions that i do ask quality candidates is okay, well, how would you measure this first of all? And then they'll tell me, and then I'll say, okay, well, uh, the machinist measured it this way, and their result is different. What do you do? And so I just want to see that they, and really the answer I'm looking for is I talk to them. I go out there, talk to them, and I ask them to show me how they measured something, and if it's right, I'll show them how I measured it, and then maybe one of us is wrong, and I'll apologize or or show them that why I'm right, And if we're both right, then we find some other way to measure it and try and validate (laughs) it again, right? So that's really the the thing I'm looking for, but because it's really just as a quality person, it's conflict resolution is a huge part of your job. You're sitting there telling people that what they just worked on for days potentially is just wrong and when they thought it was right. And so a lot of it is conflict resolution and being able to back up your measurements. So that's another thing I push a lot is we've got two cmms and the one cmm is a renishaw ph20 head so the five axis head with modus software which not so great <laughs> 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 not not a stand also i should say but it's really just seemed like it was just such a black box and so we have our quality lead is actually an engineering technologist and he didn't really have a huge manufacturing background. He's learned so much and come so far. Really, really happy to have him in there. But it's really like when you bring in a part and then the quality person just say, all they can say is, okay, well, it's wrong because the CMM said it was wrong. And you're like, okay, knowing the CMM, I can make the CMM read whatever I want. Like uh-huh. right, wrong, whatever. It's, it's not just that like know-all and be-all and end-all that people think it is. Um, so I was always trying to say, okay, if you're going to tell them it's wrong, show them that it's wrong by using a different gauge, try and come up with a way to show them that it's, that it's wrong. Obviously that's harder in some cases for heavy GD&T tolerance drawing. You're just like, well, hopefully, cross my fingers. Right, and see. yeah, exactly. Um, but the big step for us in getting all of the machinists to start understanding what the CMM reports are doing is part of our automation cell is we put in a Duramax, Zeiss Duramax CMM, Mm -hmm. and we put it outside of the cell we wanted it to be able to measure parts for the cell so we designed a, a shuttle for it so the robot can place parts on the shuttle and then it can pull it out of the cell and measure that part if need be but the biggest reason behind that is so that everybody in the shop could use that as a shop floor CMM just walk up to it and measure your parts and the side effect that I didn't even foresee is that now every single machinist knows how to program and operate a CMM and knows the intricacies of it, and knows where it can lie to you and, and go wrong. And the Calypso software is really, really user friendly. It's just like very intuitive, I find. And the reports, because it's a scanning head, you might take five thousand points on a bore, and then it'll display those results to a point where you you understand it, even as machinist um, or as machinist, because you know every part that you make on the lathe. Now you see the lobing
0: that right. happens. Yeah. You're like, oh, there's part, my three jaws. Exactly.
1: <laughs> Every single part in a vice, you're like, oh, okay, now it's not around. Now it's an ellipse. Perfect. Yeah. I'm so happy. <laughs> but, <laughs> and then beyond that, learning about like best fits. So like max inscribed versus uh, least squares for determining a bore size. And that was something that with our other CMM, the quality people really didn't grasp even them- themselves or Say like an outer tangential plane versus an average plane when you're setting a datum. We were doing all averages and it's like not real world at all. So then the guys would go there and put their part on the surface plate and measure it and be like, look, it's this. And then that'd be an argument. Whereas now both of them understand, okay, you're getting that measurement because you did it this way. I'm getting it because I did it this way and then either tweak the program, the CMM program, to make the results match or at least understand. So I think that was kind of the biggest step forward for us.
0: That's a huge step. Yeah. So you had mentioned outsourcing a lot and, and scheduling. So you said you do a lot of that. What does that mean? How do you guys manage vendors and manage timelines with vendors like that? I mean, that, that, that can really kill a project.
1: Oh yeah, so a big one for us, we do a lot of uh, fasteners for, the, for defense, for submarines. And, uh, so they will have the material will have to come in and be fully tested NDT as well as destructive. So chemical analysis, Sharpie impact, hardness, all those things. So that will entail sending a chunk of material to a lab. We use a lab in Ontario. So that's shipping days away. Our NDT is a, is local. So that one's actually pretty easy. And then we'll machine the parts and then we get more NDT done to them. And then we ship them to the States for zinc coating. And so that's a very intense timeline with a lot of outside vendors to worry about. Sometimes the material has to get flown over from the UK as well. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's heavy. But it's really just that planning stage. And that's what we were missing before we switched ERPs. And this ERP really pushes the, the planning and has all these pre process planning checks built in sort of thing that really helps the stage because you can blow a project before you even start as soon as you put that first lead time if you don't properly plan it there's no way you're gonna ever meet deadlines and so really it's just making sure that our lead times are baked into each process properly learning those vendors lead times as well because it's not always what they say so we'll, we'll pad certain vendors lead times and then keeping track along the way so we'll have mid project delivery dates that we have to meet. And so we'll go over those in our weekly meetings as well. Things that have to leave. Whereas before it was just a a deadline. So you never really knew if you were behind or not until a week before. And you're like, well, guess we're screwed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You you were putting out the biggest fires and that's, that's all you had time for. for Right.
1: Exactly. So a lot of it is, yeah. Vendor qualifications, making sure that we do have a vendor list that we can trust and not just one vendor for most things some things we have to it's just a proprietary service or something that only one person is is good at so we just have that one vendor and it's a huge risk for us but it's something that we just have to deal with but yeah the biggest thing is just learning about learning your vendors and learning to trust if if what they're saying about lead times you you can rely on or if you have to pad those numbers a little bit
0: so what about finding and onboarding new vendors because that can also be a real hard thing to do
1: yeah definitely so We will either our purchasing manager or planner or somebody kind of managing project manager will sort of look at the vendors that we have, make sure see if they're adequate or not. And if not, it's really just uh, starts with usually just a Google search and we'll look up and try and kind of vet people just by reading about them, look for some reviews, something like that. Make sure that they can come up with a process that we can complete the process that we need and then from there we'll reach out to them sometimes depending on the process we might send them test batches and so we've done that before with their zinc coating because it's for defense uh has a really high quality uh, um, high standards and it uses hexavalent chromium so that's why oh, only, yeah like there's only i think one place in canada or something one or two that really do it but we weren't really happy with their quality. So we send it to this one place that we know of in the States and you still go to Detroit actually, but they, I think lost their defense contract. So then they weren't allowed to do that sort of uh, coding. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's just a, a full loophole. Like, okay, you can do it only because you're doing it for defense. Um, so for things like that, we just make extra, we're making a run of studs or fasteners. We'll just make, 20 extra and then send them to a different shop. And those are just gone. Like, the, you know, those are scrap parts to us, but we'll send them to them, see how their paperwork is, see how their actual process is, make sure we get parts back that are correct. And then if we do, uh, we'll add them as an approved vendor at that point and start sending them parts or even scope approved where it's like, okay, they pass the test, but let's make sure the first
0: three jobs actually run as smoothly as that test part. did. I like that. That's very smart. Some more listener questions. Tux Garage asked, "Favorite customer job you've done, and what do you like best about your job?"
1: Um, so, favorite customer part, I think, and I was, maybe it's just because it just recently came up again where they're asking for a quote on a bigger one. But uh, when we were buying the five-axis, so we were making these crazy shaped parts or knife knife tip holders uh, for forestry industry, and they had cast them out of titanium. But I think the lead time on their castings was like eight months or something. And the fallout was 50%. Holy cow. Yeah, it was, it was really, really difficult for the casting house. And then they also did some out of aluminum. And we actually did them. And they're super like non-orthogonal, just crazy shape. We did those on our three axis in seven ops or something like that. And then so when I was looking at a five-axis, I was like, OK, it has to fit these parts just in case. And we were talking to them at the time about doing them out of billet. And they weren't sold on the idea right away and then they kept actually cracking the titanium ones and the aluminum ones and so they started talking to us okay well how about maybe we'll do it out of billet so titanium was out the window we talked them into doing 775 billet so we got i think 22 of these 70 pound blocks in and machined them fully all the way i think they came in around 10 pounds when they were done oh that's color and they're just because there's no square really shapes it just was such a fun part and lots of simultaneous five axis. And it was maybe four months after we got the machine. So it was was perfect, really. It couldn't have happened better where I was like, we need a machine that can do these parts just in case. And then it came along and then it turned out to be, we'd fill a drum of chips with every single billet that we (laughs) machine. Like, it was just so fun to make those parts and see them from a block to, to these finished part finished, uh, pieces of jewelry, really. I met right. one, a, one of the salesmen for, from the company actually randomly at our motorcycle club, dirt biking one day, and uh, got to talk to him. He's like, oh, you're from Rainhouse. Oh, cool. You made those, those?" He's like, those are like jewelry. Everybody was, just love those. He's like, you don't want to see them after they go f- in the field. I was like, no, no, I do not ever want to see those broken and, and scratched up. But I right. think that one was just a, a fun project because there was so much metal removal and the customer was so pleased with it. And simultaneous five after just getting the machine. I can, you know, you just sit there and stare through the window. Totally.
0: Yeah. What do you guys use the program? And so we're
1: fully fusion. Okay. We used to be, we were all MasterCam. And then when we bought the Metzger, I reached out to MasterCam about, the, and we had one seat. So I reached out to MasterCam about five axis pricing. And the quote was like fairly absurd <laughs> for once. I was like, I mean, it makes sense. It's a, it's a great software. It was just, I loved Mastercam it was like, you know, I had really, really strong software to use. No, no complaints except for that price. And at the time I was using fusion at home just for design things on and off. I would started trying to use it at work, but I would always get to that point where you go, okay, I know I can do this faster in Mastercam. So I'm just going to do that. And I'd pull up Mastercam and just, I was in that cycle for a month or two. And so eventually I was just like, okay. I'm going to learn fusion. So I took the dongle for Mastercam out of my computer and just put it away on a shelf. And I was like, I'm going to use fusion for at least a month. I'm going to commit to a month. And within like two weeks, I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to ever go back now. Like just, <laughs> uh, and then being with the five axis, the biggest thing is CAD CAM in one system. Being Because we we have CAMPLETE as well for full machine simulation. So we draw in all our fixtures, and bring in all our vices, bring in the part and uh at the time i've heard mashcam got better with this but at the time like building an, an assembly in mashcam was like pulling teeth like it just move things it zoom in real far till there's no more pixels in between things right yeah. yeah yeah exactly so yeah switched to fusion and been super happy with it actually i think we have five seats now of it everybody's on it everybody likes it for the awesome. most part we program the matsura with it every day we program the like all our other three-axis mills, and then the WT150. Actually, we program with with that as well, but obviously with some hand edits to make it dual stream. But right for the most part, it'll just spit out a code that works. The post that was the built-in post, the free downloadable Nakamura post, just worked out of the gate. I think I made a couple edits to it,
0: just That's to do things that I
1: wanted. Yeah, like it's it's really changing the way that things have been done.
0: That's killer. And then the second part of his question, what's what do you like best about your job?
1: Yeah. I mean, years ago, when it was just machining, that was easy. You know, you go to work, you start with a block of material. I think that's what we all like about the job is you start with nothing and then at the end of the day, you've made this really cool part or solved some problem of work holding or some tolerance issue and just like worked through it. And then at the end of the day, you're like, okay, I feel like I've actually really accomplished something tangible. It's sitting in front of me. Everybody's oogling at it. Right. So, um,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but the more you move away from that into a management role, it's some of the things that you do are less tangible. Uh, and at the end of the day, some days I'll go home and just be like, I didn't feel like I did anything today at all. I was sitting at my desk, staring at a screen all day and didn't really feel like I accomplished anything, but then it's just longer term projects. So maybe after a couple of weeks, You look back and you're like, okay, well, actually, no, we built out this process that's actually going to help something flow through smoothly or, um, you know, research some software that's actually going to make change in the future. So I think that's probably my most like the favorite part of my job now is is dealing with those larger projects and working on processes and trying to just control the direction of where the business is actually going.
0: Yeah, I imagine it sounds like a little bit of a delayed gratification, but that it's like a very big thing when you've actually done something. Right. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Bryce also asked, what is your favorite part of the robo drill and why is it the $7,000 taper wash option?
1: (laughs) We obviously talk way too much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But no, uh, favorite part of the robo drill is actually just watching it beat drops of water to the park because it's got over a g of acceleration
0: <laughs> so yep. when i
1: first noticed that it's like you read over a g of acceleration and you're like okay yeah that's cool but then you watch it in practice and you're like okay yeah that's that's pretty awesome yeah you know, it's same as any drill tap the brother is like just watching a tool change and just how fast those machines are and they're really it's bulletproof like the maintenance on it is minimal it, the control talks you through all the maintenance like it's it's just a nice machine to use it's even for its size, I was kind of worried that jobbing on it would suck because it's you know a bit of a smaller door you've only got twenty one tools things like that, but it's actually a really nice machine to job on as well once we figured out how to slow down the rapids <laughs> it's got what is it zero twenty five yeah 0, 25 five's still like you're never going to stop it ever and zero is a snail but yeah there's this code where you can actually scale all your rapids oh interesting yeah so i've got it on a an optional block skip and so when the when that's active 25 becomes like seven or something so it's it's way more manageable and then i was like okay i can deal with this now
0: yeah the the brothers have zero through five yeah and four is like almost too slow and then five is like full kill and you're like right. i kind of want something in between there and i know i can go into parameters and change it but it's like uh, you know i don't want to screw around with it too much yeah it, it's it kind of warps your sense of what speed is you like go and right. run another machine and you're like oh man i am gonna check my phone while a tool changes it's oh, taking forever like <laughs>
1: yeah i'll go on i'll run the 520 now and i'm just like really like i'll check i'll look at 100 percent all the time like am i running 100 like Right. Yeah, yeah it's, exactly. It's just completely different. And then yeah. the uh, tool chain or the taper wash. I will ban on this because it's kind of funny. So our salesman was like, I will not sell a RoboDraw without this option. And I was like, okay, sounds great. And then I get the, the quote and it's yeah, like $7,500 in the I'm like, what? Like, what is it? And I'm looking everywhere for, there's nothing out there in the world that even like will show. I found one little tiny thumbnail that kind of shows a blurry picture of what it might be. I'm like, I don't know, like, do I need it? All this stuff. Yeah. Okay. It sounds like I probably should get it with automated running. And now that I've run the machine, like with the tool inside all the time, like, yeah, get taper wash. And I actually found, I was talking to a, I can't remember who it was, but a guy on Instagram, he had a few, he had three robo drills and I was asking him like, okay, do I get this option? Like, what is it? I mean, I don't even know what it looks like. And it's $7,500. He's like, yeah, I have three robo drills. I bought one with it and i'm now going to retrofit the other two like just get it so that was enough i was like okay done i'm happy when it came in like it's literally just a block that sit behind the spindle i've seen brother guys they just print them on the 3d printer and it's such like it just works but it's a block and then they got to run a hose has its own i.o card that they had to install oh wow yeah uh, (laughs) because and then but it also has its own upgraded pump and a full filter system so once I saw all that stuff I was like okay no this, this checks out that makes sense but at yeah. the time there's it's like no information at all It's just a checkbox bu- $7,500 checkbox
0: Yep, yeah it's the same mm-hmm. thing on the brothers but they yeah like Amazon won't even sell dual contact spindles without it they, they're oh, yeah. like this is a one in the same kind of option like you are right. getting both because yeah you know you clamp one chip under the, the flat and you know it you know you're yeah. like oh why did my part all of a sudden like the hole came out two thou oversized or two thou undersized it's like oh you know you got a chip under there so yeah we we had that happen
1: with our 520 we were making these parts and the parts are i think it was it's 57 tools out of the 60 that get used for these parts and it was two week just endless amounts of setting up and programming and and running these parts and you know we've proven them out and They're coming out. One would be the first few weren't, weren't perfect. And all of a sudden they're start. Okay. Now they're good. And, but running the programs kind of segmented, right. As you do building out a new process. Okay. I'm going to run the roughing and then load up something else. And then, so I ran, loaded the whole program the first time ran one part all the way through and it was good. And I was like, wow, that ran really smooth. I'm just going to run one and go home. And so I did that and I came back the next day and yeah, one of the, there was a boss. And I measured it, and it was like 2,000 small. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, what happened here? I'm trying uh-huh. to figure it out. And then I pull up the tool. I call it up, and we run mixed tooling on that machine. So some did dual contact and some not. Pulled it up. And it was a lot of deep hole drilling with through-tool coolant. So it was throwing chips like crazy. And yeah, sure enough, I look, and I can see the gap when it changed the tool because the chip got stuck on the tool, not the spindle. So it was just that tool. And I see the gap, and I was like, <laughs> like... Yep. So mad
0: fun, fun, hey. fun. So yeah, yeah,
1: I uh contemplated taking that tool holder to the manual lathe and turning <laughs> the flange <laughs> and making it non-dual contact. Because it's the same thing, it's the only I think we have maybe a couple, but that is it's like an SK call it from Mari tool and yeah. like such a nice tool. But I really for the stuff that we're doing, especially in a forty caper, I don't really see a huge difference with dual contact. Like you know, a lot of our stuff is longer tool, you know, stickouts, but we're not doing crazy high roughing or anything. Right. Um, but yeah, it, I don't it's know. just I, crazy
0: to me that more companies don't have some kind of taper wash. Like I've only seen it either yeah. on like, you know, lower end drill taps like Brothers and Robo Drills or like Grobes have yeah. like a brush but i've never seen anything in the middle there that's like oh yeah let's add a i don't care if it's a seven thousand dollar option like you said right. you know it's like put it in there so i don't have to worry
1: about this exactly if it saves one one part like that would have been seven grand right there the one that we have just in, right exactly in effort yeah
0: yeah it's nuts mm-hmm. um emery asked two questions as well how does he clear an a136 second spindle alarm he can't find in the manual and can we trade nakamura's
1: <laughs> if so Yeah. Clearly Emery and Bryce work together. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) When I had
0: Emery on, oh man, it's gotta be over a year ago. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Emery's great for
1: sure. Uh, so it's just funny. Like they're always complaining about, they've got, we're all fan controls at Raynaud's. We just kind of standardized. We had a Hyundai with a Siemens control, but it was an old Siemens control and it went down and like, nobody knew how to fix it. It was down for six months. So we're like, whatever we're just stick with one control. Whereas. Bryce with JS Foster, they're kind of completely. They're like, whatever, we'll just try them all. And uh, he's actually looking at a brother right now, and I'm like, well, I mean, you don't have that control yet, so you should probably get that <laughs> one. <laughs> um, but they have a like a Akuma, Haas, Fanic, and so I always hear, you know, obviously, then you see what's good about ones and what's bad about others. And so for me, I'm just stuck in Fanic land where it's like, well, if you want to change something, it's just parameter. Thirty-two oh two, obviously,
0: <laughs> um, right? Yeah, thirty-two oh two. It's keep relay sixteen. You know,
1: bit right. two. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Exactly. Instead of having English, that's like warning light on or off. Yeah. Nah, yeah.
0: That's too easy. That's way too easy.
1: <laughs> and so the other day we had a little bit of a it was on the neck. A tool was it was he was milling some holes. helix exploring boring some holes, and the tool was just a little bit too short, and so the collet rubbed into the part and. He stopped it he stopped it like it i don't even know if it alarmed anything out but then it would not turn back on and it was this abstract code that was like yeah. spindle motor one wiring disconnected and i'm like what tried to google it nothing and so we're checking all the wires for the motors in the cabinet checking everything make sure everything everything's fine and so i text one of the service guys from elliot and he's just like oh yeah or i send him the picture of the arms like yeah that's PMC. or uh, You got to, to change a PMC parameter from a zero to a one. Of course. Like, what? Yeah, <laughs> then, of course. What? what? And it's just some random, random parameter. And it was, it was. Oh no, he said from a one to a zero. But he was super slammed and busy with other things, so that was the last message I got from him. And I find the bit, and it, it was already a zero. And I'm like, oh, like I don't really want to just go flipping random bits. And so I messaged one of the other techs and he got back to me and he's like, yeah, no, it is, but you got to go from zero to one and then back to zero. And as soon as I flipped it to one, the machine flashed up, hydraulics turned on, everything's on. And I'm just laughing and like, of course,
0: of course. Yeah, that that feels very phanic for sure. Oh yeah. We had a a V plus 550, a Matsura at my last job and it was starting to throw spindle or a tool chain servo inverter alarms. Right. And it took me like three or four days to figure out that I had to go in to keep relays and flip one that then allowed like the manual adjustment of the tool change arm and you had to rotate it back in handyman and then go yeah. back and reset the, the keep relay and then everything was good for a while. And it was, man, it was just a nightmare. It's like, why even have handyman if I can't do all the handyman stuff without going into panic no and changing a bunch of stuff? <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Yeah, it's a nightmare, but yeah, you know, it's it, it is bulletproof. You can't. Yeah, you can't... exactly.
1: And you know, it's it's all we have, so it's all we know. And we're all happy. We're just in our own little <laughs> <laughs> fantasy land.
0: Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, that brings me on to shop news and new things. Um, do you have any new machinery or processes you guys are working on that you're excited about, or even looking forward? Are you guys going to head towards you know a, a three thirty with a pallet changer for all this low volume, high mix work?
1: Yeah. So I think I mentioned some of them already, but the Nakamura WT, that was our newest machine. So we got that in January, super exciting. We sold the Takamas and then we only had one lathe. I really didn't want another twin spindle, twin turret for the type of work we were doing. And then this one actually came up used and it was at first I just outright said, no, when the salesman was like, Hey, I got to use one." I was like, no, I don't want one. Like I'm not interested. And then he started telling a bit more about it and then i started researching a bit more and more and more and like okay this works and for the price we could just not use the bottom turret and just use it as a normal lathe and it's still cheaper than if i went out and bought a (laughs) brand new single turret twin spindle that's Um, killer yeah and it was great and now that we have it like i'm so happy it's such a nice machine it's just going you know all of with new control new way of doing things it's quite nice to use Um, That's awesome. Yeah. And then other than that, the heat treating that I was talking about, that's kind of our major project that we're working on right now. Unfortunately, I took it on myself. (laughs) So I designed the thing and started buying, buying pieces for it and machining things and then just, you know, get absolutely bogged down with everything else. And there's no way that I have time to do this. And we recently just hired somebody else that, is an electronics technician, so he's doing our circuit board assembly, but he's also, like, just an all-around, uh, like, know-it-all sort of, he just, you know, everything I talk to him about, he's like, oh, yeah, no, I've done a bit of that, done a bit of that, so we're going to push this onto him, so he's already coming to talk to me about it, and the other day I walked into his little room and he's got the control set up, and I'm like, oh, you're going to get the motor going? He's like, yeah, yeah, like, I'm excited that's awesome. about it, so yeah, it, that's one of those ones that, You know, you take it on thinking this will be a fun project, but in the back of your head and not even the back in front of your head, you just know that you shouldn't be the one doing it. If you want it to get done, you should probably hand that fun project off to somebody else. For sure. Um, Yeah. yeah. And then sort of some, the biggest news very recently is, so I haven't even mentioned, but Ray has sort of taken it up upon himself to explore battery pack manufacturing. So far under the Rainhouse umbrella, but eventually it will kind of break off into its own entity. So what the idea is, is we'll take uh, second life EV batteries from cars and turn them into energy storage solutions, but on a like municipal level. So it'd be container or building sized storage facilities. And so we just, uh, it just came out beginning of this week that we received 750K in grant funding. From CICE, so it's the BC Center for Innovation and Clean Energy. So, congrats! Yeah, oh, cool. super stoked. It's two million dollar project. So we still have quite a lot of funding and seed money <laughs> yeah. to look for. This is just the start. It's the scary part because we're like, okay, we got this. Now we really have to go ahead and move on. And so that'll be for a test size installation. We'll start with a hundred kilowatt hour pack installed somewhere where we can just start monitoring it and discharging it, and it'll either be behind the meter or grid dud. And with the end goal, this will just be a stepping stone to the end goal of building a 100 megawatt or a, a one megawatt installation that is, uh, it will be installed in a township of, in Alberta is the idea. And they can use it to store energy and pull energy for their municipality, but also uh, buy energy when it's cheaper and then sell it back when it's more expensive. And so they can actually use it as an income generating Facility,
0: that's killer. Then,
1: yeah, so we'll lease them the batteries and the building and everything, and then just charge them for the usage, and and we'll take care of all the data as well to say because it'll be fairly complicated algorithm. I think to say you know when to buy and when to sell because if you fill twenty percent of the battery at X amount and another ten percent at X amount, and you know when where's that average out to where you're selling and still making the most amount of money. So we've got a pretty smart team working on that right now and getting into just monitoring packs that we have in-house we're just charging and discharging and monitoring cell voltage and capacities and seeing battery life
0: and 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 things like that so so you actually brought up a point a a question i forgot to ask earlier how do you guys separate your electronics manufacturer from your machine shop and make sure because coolant mist is not good for electronics and stuff like that so (laughs) Do you have like a clean room-ish kind of thing that you're assembling all this stuff in?
1: Yeah, it's fully separated. So the okay, it's uh, it, the electronics manufacturing is currently in a room on its own that's beyond our quality office. So it's kind of two doors separated. Uh, for mist, we do have misters on all our machines as well. So it's not actually too bad. We it's all climate. Our whole entire building is climate controlled as well, so um, filtered nice like it's it's pretty clean, but yeah, we are separated behind a couple doors. we're actually looking at moving electronics to the bay next door, more so less for cleanliness and more so just so we can consolidate all the equipment right now, some of it's upstairs and some of it's downstairs, so it's definitely not ideal, but yeah, we're not doing like anything too wild where we would need a clean room it's no clean room facilities needed it's simply. Uh, Populating circuit board, so we'll bring in the boards, solder paste, and then put on all the components. Reflow, gotcha. And,
0: yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, Chris, that brings me to the last two questions I ask every guest every week. First one is, what did you research this week? It doesn't have to be machining related. It's just been what's been popping up in your browser. It's always interesting to see what interesting people are into.
1: Sure. So uh, <clears throat> this week I've actually been researching others' i like c m m s because of our pain pain points with uh, our current. <laughs> Uh, office cmm so just kind of looking at in the like a bigger counter style machine something with a little bit more capacity than the duramax and just having the same program for two cmms shop floor and a and a office floor would just be so much better right right now we're seeing so much churn between between the two and then in final inspection as well so i'm just kind of looking forward we it would be a ways out before we would even look at this like you know years into the future but just kind of getting that idea and seeing because we're also looking at just upgrading the software on our cmm to something different and so that might be an avenue we do instead
0: okay yeah. have, so have you been looking at like nikon cmm manager or something like that for your the other one
1: cmm manager we tried that one and then what's the other one polyworks okay those would be kind of the two major ones that would talk to the ph20 head as well or in, in any way so yeah
0: cool that's great yeah I, I can tell that you really love the business when you're researching something that far out in advance right. you're like no but i want to geek out on the machinery exactly yeah yeah definitely love it the other question is what are the things you're working on to be a better person leader what have you none of us are perfect we're all working on stuff and it's always interesting to hear what we're all working on mm-hmm. I'm working
1: on becoming just a a better boss leader in, in general, and just making sure that I pay a lot of respect uh, to the employees that I'm lucky enough to have, and we don't want to lose any of them. They're all great. So trying to read more like books, I'm reading the book radical candor right now. So it's literally how to become a better boss, a few pages in, and so far, there's so many things that are just resonating where I'm just like, yep, yep. No, that's me. I, I get that. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I see that I've gotten getting pretty good about doing regular employee reviews. And then as well, at that time, we have a review of management. And so for the most part, it's all really good feedback, right. uh, it's all good feedback for sure. And constructive, but I have received a couple of times where it's just like, okay, well, sometimes when I ask a question, it seems like you think I should know the answer already. And I'm like, no, and they say it and they're like, don't want to say it to my face. And I'm like, no, it's okay. I've gotten that before. I'm trying to work on it. I don't do it on purpose. I don't know where it comes from, but, uh, yeah, so just really trying to work on that and just make sure that I show the respect to everybody in the shop that really
0: is there. Do you have any lessons you could pass on to listeners about employee retention, things that you guys do well?
1: Um, yeah, I think the the getting feedback as much as you can and pushing for that feedback for sure. We we run a an anonymous employee survey and it actually is really anonymous. Like we, you try and find out who it is just because you're like, ah, oh, come on, like why? I, I can help you if I know who that who said that. <laughs> uh, but there's no way. And at the end of the day, you just have to realize that's how the majority feels over the minor, minority and work within that. So having a really good employee survey survey and probably anonymous, like it's like that comment box of the past, right. Where you just put in and, um, but then actually making sure that you take those findings into account and really try and improve because of it. And so what we, what we're doing with this one is we all like in our management meeting, obviously we go over all of these findings and then we're trying to pick the ones that are either trending down or are just too low and come up with a game plan for just fixing that one thing and so we've created like a kappa in our system for it and like really trying to take it seriously so that so we're looking at upgrading our benefits plan currently we have a health spend, health spending account which works excellent for me uh I'm single and just myself no kids so two thousand dollars a year that i can use anything on any whatever i want works perfectly but if people with a family and kids or, or partner just Sometimes we're finding it isn't enough. So we're looking at possibly doing like a mixed plan where it's uh, your, your usual benefits plan, but then with an HSA attached to it as well. And then we, so we, we used to do potlucks all the time, company potlucks, and it was really fun by the end. Some, sometimes people would be like, hi, oh, I don't want to cook for tomorrow. So um, right. they kind of fell off a little bit and then COVID happened and it was, really just became like you go to work and you're just there working and then you're going to go home and it's just that thing where and so we're trying to open it up again and and so we have a fun committee that we just started again and our marketing coordinator and one of our machinists have taken that on and they're just killing it like they are so happy about it they're all bubbly and like coming up with new ideas and so we had last month we stopped at noon and just did a barbecue for everybody and they could bring in drinks and we played games in the parking lot. And it was just like so many people had such a good time and a lot of people came up to me and was like, Hey, thanks. Thanks a lot. And it was such a little thing, but I could see that people really appreciate it. And so they're going to put on another one this Friday, I think. And so just empowering them with this has really helped culture as well, because like we don't always, as management, there's not always the time or the focus that properly has to be given to it. And then sometimes there's always back of your head, you know, you're like, oh, like we're really, I'm looking at the schedule and be like, oh, Friday off is going to be tough. Like, how are you going to do this? Whereas we've just empowered these two people who are our fund committee to be like, okay, this is your budget. This is how much time you can have a month allocated to this and go ahead. And they will go and talk to the department heads and let them know. They'll give them a couple days and be like, okay, what out of these days, what ones work better? But it's, really not up to upper management at all. Like I just leave it in, in the department heads hands and I'm like, if it works within your schedule, then let's do it. And, uh, so that's a, a big one that was like an easy positive for us right away.
0: That's killer. Yeah. That, that's mm-hmm. such a good idea. And, you know, I, I imagine that as a manager, you know, you are just like, I just want to like I want to do something, but I might not have the time to plan something. and so yeah, right. it, it sounds like you've really given the right people the job so that not only are you doing something for them, but you're doing something of value, which is you, awesome. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It has been fantastic. Uh, like a big shout out to Johnny for connecting us. I, I, yeah, you know, I've been following yeah, Rainhouse forever. I just I didn't know anybody's name there, and you know, didn't know who to reach out to. And so I'm very glad that he connected us. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast
1: yeah thanks for having me and yeah definitely big shout out to johnny having him he came by our shop a while ago for a tour and we've been talking forever on instagram as well so it was great to meet him in person and then having this come out of it as well has just
0: been great definitely well thank you and thanks to new patreon members matthew and cameron and thank you all for listening i will be back next week